In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, and of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Welcome to Aletheia. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors. I appreciate you guys being here this morning. Anyway, if you've got a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 1. Apparently, we don't have the verses today, so uh, I apologize. We're going to have to go old school. You need to bring out your cellular device or open that up. Um, But... We've kind of come to the climax of our, of our series this fall. Um, we've been going through the grand narrative, as we've called it, and basically what we've been trying to kind of break down is, and make clear is that the flow of Scripture kind of works in this plane. Creation, fall, redemption, and glory. That if, that if you read the totality of Scripture... Right, we see in Genesis 1 and 2, God creating all things and then being good, right, and being made in such a way that it would bring him glory and honor and that we exist, right, to make much of God and make him known and that human beings are kind of like the, the pinnacle of creation in the way that they make much of God. But then we see when we get to Genesis chapter 3 that everything goes haywire because of sin, Because of Adam and Eve's disobedience and unwillingness to believe in God's goodness, right? God's perfect design for this world was shattered because of their unbelief and their rebellion towards Him. And pretty much everything that we've been looking at since the sermon that I preached on the fall in in the Garden of Eden has been this idea of redemption. In light of what Adam and Eve have done to kind of fracture God's design for for mankind and the world the way that we know it, what has God been doing to work out reconciliation with his creation? What has he been doing to save us basically from ourselves? What is the theme? And so we've, we've looked at a ton of different stories, right? And, and the Old Testament, as we've seen over and over again over the course of the last couple of months, is that if there's one consistent theme, it's that this is this. God is faithful. Right? For, like, if we look at the story of Adam and Eve, right, in the midst of their disobedience and rebellion, God clothes them and sends them out of the garden, but then protects them outside of Eden. Right, if we look at the story of Noah, we see that God says the entire world is wicked and in rebellion and that none of them are following the design that God has given them. And yet, Noah and his family are preserved and the human race survives because of God's mercy towards them. Right, if we look at the story of Abraham, we see God's covenant promise to Abraham, promising that he will make a great nation of Abraham, but then he will see Abraham through that process in the midst of some jacked up things that Abraham does, like giving away his wife to other kings, like dealing with the sin of his own family members and wanting God to save them. When we see God's faithfulness to Abraham, and then when we go to David, we see God's faithfulness to David that he promises uh, offspring from David that will have an everlasting kingdom, and yet throughout David's life, he deals with David's sin with Bathsheba. 
He faithfully protects David as he faces Goliath, and he sovereignly controls David's life and protects him from King Saul, who tries to kill him multiple times. That the Old Testament is littered with God's faithfulness that is centered around one thing. That we may see God's faithfulness and the promise of redemption peppered throughout the Old Testament, but all of those stories of faithfulness are a small speck to the faithfulness of what God has promised where he told guys like Abraham, Isaiah, Ezekiel, David, I am sending someone who is going to fix everything. I am sending someone who is going to change the world. He's the promised Messiah who will bring all nations under his rule, who will crush the serpent's head and have an everlasting kingdom. This is the God we have seen and talked about over the last couple months throughout the Old Testament. And so God saves us often from ourselves, even the heroes of our Old Testament stories that we get excited about, and promises to continue to do so. And so when we get to this section of Scripture now in Luke chapter 1, we're at a pivotal point in human history that Israel was sitting underneath the rule of Rome. They've experienced over the last 600 years multiple times of being put into exile and then being brought back into their land. They've seen bad kings rise and fall and they're desperately crying out to God, what are you going to do about this, God? We're constantly under oppression. What are you going to do? And so we get to this point in Luke chapter 1 and the nation of Israel is under Roman control who currently is using this puppet king named King Herod to run things, and it's not going well. And all they're looking for in light of this, and in light of what they've seen their God do in history, is they're looking for this long-awaited, promised Messiah and king who's going to come and rescue them. And here's some of the things they're looking for, right? In the book of Isaiah... Right? God promised to Isaiah that this king would be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God. That God himself would sit on the throne and rule Israel. In the book of Genesis, he promised Eve that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent, destroying evil. This is what they're looking for. When you look in the book of Ezekiel, the promise of the Messiah is that he would unify the nation of Israel and restore it to its former glory. When you look in the book of Numbers... Right? The promise of the Messiah is that he will bring utter destruction to the enemies of God and all that have stood up in his wake. Right? If you look in the book of Daniel or 2 Samuel, you see the promise that this king, this one who's going to come and God is going to send, is going to set up an everlasting kingdom that will rule not just over Israel, but will rule over all the nations of the earth. And so this is what Israel's looking for. Like, hey, we're sitting underneath this oppressive regime. God, where is this guy? Where is he? And as we look at the book of Luke this morning, I'm going to kind of give away the entire sermon. He comes. But the problem is, is that Luke leaves everything that we talked about, right, in large part, out of the story in the sense that when Jesus comes and lives 
he's going to fulfill all those things, but it's going to be perplexing to the Israelites because they're not going to understand how it fulfills the prophecy of the Old Testament that God had given. All right, look at, look at the verses that Blaine read for us in Luke chapter 1. And to give you a little bit of background, up until this point in the Gospel of Luke, right, an angel has come to visit Zechariah, who is a family member. He's like a, a cousin to Mary, and he's a priest, and so he's in the priesthood, and this, this angel comes to Zechariah and says, hey, you're going to have this son, you're going to name him John, and he's going to go before turning many people back to God in this season of his life, and he's going to prepare the way for my Messiah. Right, that's kind of where we are in the story. And so Zechariah right, is, is kind of not really believing the angel. And so he ends up being struck, um, unable to speak. God, the angel makes him mute. And so that's kind of where we're at in the story at this point. That this promised person that's coming before the Messiah, who's going to be coming in the spirit of Ezekiel, John the Baptist, is on the way. Right? So we get to verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. And look, look at what happens. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. So this angel Gabriel shows up to Mary, says, Hey, look, I've got a message for you. You're favored of God. Are you, are you ready? Okay. Now, just imagine, I mean, this is kind of a big deal, right? Random person shows up in your room, right, as you're, as you're standing there, right? Mary's response is, is fear, right? Look at verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So here the angel Gabriel stands before her and she's afraid and she's trying to figure out, hey, why is this guy in my room? I don't know what's going on right now. Um, what are you doing here? Kind of nervous. You say you're from God. That could be a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, God sends angels when he's ticked off and happy. So what, what's going on here? What's happening? And then this is like the key part of the passage that we're going to focus in on this morning, right? Verses 30 through 33. Look at what Gabriel says to Mary concerning why he's come to see her. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no So he addresses her fear and tries to reassure and say, hey, look, you, no, you found favor with God, and here's, here's why I'm here. I've got, a, I've got an important message for you. You're going to conceive and bear a son. You're going to name him Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high God, and he will have the throne of David and will reign forever. Now, now everything that Gabriel says there fits directly in line with many of the things I said earlier that would be true about the Messiah, right? He's going to rule forever. He's going to be on the throne of David, right? He's going to be great, right? All, all things that I mentioned earlier that Israel was looking for, right? So, so here's this promise to Mary, hey, your son is this guy, right? This, this long-awaited guy that you're going to carry a son 
that is going to be the guy that our people have looked for for hundreds of years. You're going to be the one to carry him. Sounds great, right? Okay, problem, right? Mary is what? A virgin and not currently married, right? She's betrothed, which is a legally binding engagement in Israeli culture, meaning that if Joseph was to back out on the marriage, he would actually have to legally get a divorce to marry, even though they haven't officially consummated the marriage, that they are, for all legal purposes, under Israeli law, married. And so she's like, look, I'm betrothed, but I am not married yet. What the heck are you talking about? This is not possible. And, and this is one of those things that I think I'm going to spend about five minutes on because normally when someone teaches on this passage, this is what they focus on. They're like, look at Mary. Right, look at her. Like, look at what she has to walk through, right? This is a big deal, right? Mary is staring down, right, shame for being pregnant outside of marriage, rejection from her family, from her religious community, and those around her because she's going to be pregnant outside of marriage, she is facing possible execution because the penalty for adultery under Jewish law is to be taken outside of the city and stoned, right? And then lastly, she's staring down the possibility of single motherhood, which as difficult as single motherhood is in our own culture, multiply that by about 100 during that time because women did not have many of the same basic human rights that we have in American culture and often did not carry jobs to be able to do something like that. So she's staring down poverty, shame, rejection, right? And maybe, possibly even considering how things went in that culture, right, the possibility of being killed for what she's done. So imagine what's running through her mind. Right? And this is what people tend to focus in on when they preach this particular text. They're like, you know, she's thinking, how is this going to happen? Why me? What am I going to do? This is a disaster. And that's certainly something that would run through her mind. And so obviously she turns to Gabriel and says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Right, verse 34. Hey, how, how, how can this be a reality? And the angel answers her and says this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Right, so Mary responds to the confusion and the fear of what she's been, had brought before her by saying, how is this going to happen? And Gabriel says, God's going to do it. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you because nothing is impossible with God. Hey, and if you don't believe me, your, your family member, your cousin Elizabeth, she's pregnant. And she's pretty old. And so you know what a miracle it would be for her to be with child right now. And she's actually six months along, so you'll be able to know it immediately. And Mary responds, and this is what people get so excited about. They're like, she responds, she says, I'm a servant of the Lord, let it be according to your word. 
Right? So often we read this passage, you're like, see, so we need to have the same type of faith as Mary. Right? We, need to, we need to be excited. And I would say there's certainly something to take away from that, that Mary has seen over the course of her life, right, through her family and through knowing about God's faithfulness to Israel throughout the Old Testament, hey, I can, I can trust God. Right? God rescued Abraham. God rescued David. God rescued Noah. He rescued Jonah. He rescued Daniel. Okay, that's, like, that's what my God does. He's faithful. Okay, God, I'm going to trust you. My trust and my hope is in your faithfulness just as it was for my ancestors. But guys, here's the problem with focusing on Mary in this story. She's not the hero. <laughs> right? And this is why... There is confusion really all over the globe about the importance of who Mary is, right? It's not like Gabriel showed up to say, all right, Mary, let's hang out this afternoon so I can tell you how great you are and what an important role you're going to have in the future of spreading the truth about who God is to the nations. Right? Did anybody see any of that communicated in, in Luke chapter 1? I didn't, right? The only thing he really mentions about her is, hey, you found favor in God's eyes, which oftentimes that language in the Greek means you've, you've earned God's love and favor apart from anything you've done in your life up until this point. That you've earned God's unmerited grace and free love towards you in spite of your performance and behavior. It's, it's not like we read the book of Luke and we say, well, thank goodness Mary existed because God's entire plan would have been sabotaged without her. No, she was simply chosen to be used by God the same way any of the people we've looked at over the course of this entire fall were used by God. Right? There was nothing special about David. There was nothing special about Abraham. There was nothing special about Noah. There was nothing special about Daniel. Right? The men and women that we've looked at over the course of the last couple of months right, have clearly shown us over and over again the hero is not the person it's God that God's faithfulness over and over again through all this is so that we will see as we read these stories God is faithful look to him don't look to the person and try to imitate them that God's faithfulness is what pushes us and so Mary is not the center of this story the child is Look at verses 32 and 33 with me. That's where we're going to be planted today. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. He will be great. This child will be what you've been looking for, Mary. This child will be what your countrymen are looking for. This child will be what the world is looking for, even though they don't even know it. His greatness cannot be known. And, and so I want to I pause, and this is where we're going we're, we're to spend the rest of our time this morning. Fixated on that idea, that statement, he will be great. Because here's, here's the reality for you and I sitting here this morning. Some of you guys have been going to church for 
anywhere from a decade or longer. And so when I tell you to think and, and ponder and reflect upon the greatness of Jesus Christ and who he is, right, your mind runs to a few places. But I would submit to you that almost everyone in here, if not all of us, right, will run to a few places and those are insufficient in the way that we think about who he is. Right, we have the benefit Right? Unlike Mary at this point in her life as she's being addressed by Gabriel, well, you and I have the benefit of looking back at the cross. And so if you are a disciple of Jesus here this morning, right, and I tell you, reflect on the greatness of Jesus in your life for a minute. Right? Most of us are going to sit here and reflect upon right, his death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf. You're going you're gonna to reflect on what Jesus did on the cross for you. A very, very key and important part of, of his greatness. That is just one small piece of who this child ends up being. Right? Let's unpack this for a second. And I want us to think about Jesus, right, in two planes to start. Right? Think about Jesus, right, the Son of God. And then think about Jesus as the Son of Mary. Okay? We, we can think about Jesus, right, often. And, and when I say, when, when I tell you to think about him as being the Son of God. I'm really saying, think about Jesus in the sense of his divine nature, right? Who he is as God and, and God's Son, right? And we would say things like, well, we know that he's equal to the Father and he's creator of all things, right? If you flip over to John chapter 1 really quickly with me, right, you'll see all of that being communicated by John, right? Look at verse 1 through 5 with me. Right, John's writing to a bunch of disciples in various churches, and he says, in the beginning was the Word. And he's talking about beginning, beginning, Genesis chapter 1, beginning, okay? <laughs> right, so, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was. By, by the way, guys, just so we're clear on this, it didn't say God created this Word. He, he just was. He was with God the Father. Okay. All things, we're tracking that? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so we see in John chapter 1, John saying, hey, look, there in the beginning when God was creating, the Word was with him, and the Word was doing all of these things. And you go down to verse 14, and look what it says. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus. John is talking about Jesus there. And he's saying, think about the greatness of the Father in creation and all that he's done to speak life as we know it into being. None of that was done without the Son. That the Son was a part of all of it. In his, in his greatness, he was with the Father. He spoke life into being with the Father. And in him was life. And yet later on in John chapter 1, John says this. He... Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Now think about that for a second, right? Because remember what I said earlier about how 
Israel was longing for this Messiah. And then John's clearly saying, hey, look at how amazing Jesus is, right? Why would they reject him? Doesn't make any sense, right? We're talking about the creator of all human life, and yet he gets rejected by his own people when he shows up. If he was so great and promised, what happened? Where did the confusion come in? Like, did they not understand his divine nature? What was going on? And I would say this. Israel's problem with Jesus was not an understanding the divine nature of the Messiah, but not understanding the human nature of the Messiah. Look at the following things that are true of Jesus. Like, that Jesus is both God in the flesh. So he is fully God and fully man. And in the flesh... Here's some things that are true of him. Of the Savior of the known world, Jesus Christ, here are some things that are true of him. And you tell me how great this would appear to you as an Israelite living in the first century. He's born to a virgin. Okay? He's a bastard child. That's the correct terminology for him. Not real great in a conservative religious culture. He comes as a child who ends up being born in a stable amongst animals. So, as Israel's looking for the king of the entire world, he comes in and is born next to donkey dung and sheep feces and all this other stuff, right, in Bethlehem, because he's got no place to go. They're expecting a king like Solomon. Instead, they get a king who's born in a stable, whose parents lay him in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. He grew up a poor son to a carpenter. He's got no wealth. He's got no influence. His family's highly uneducated. So far, he's striking out on all accounts of what Israel's looking for. As an adult, once he enters into ministry... He was poor the entire time he walked around modern-day Israel and Judea and Damascus. He never had any property or a place to sleep. Um, he lived and walked among sinners, which in first-century Israel was about as bad as having leprosy. Right? The culture was so religiously conservative that if you spent any time around known sinners, you were lumped in with them and thought to be one yourself and thought that there to be something wrong with you and that people shouldn't be around you or take what you say seriously. He was accused of multiple people of having a demon or a devil inside of him. And then, at the end of his ministry, he's sold by one of his best friends at the price of a slave. So, still... <laughs> Right? We're looking at all these great things that the Messiah is supposed to be and look at the life of Jesus Christ. As it's matching up with this, this baby born to this virgin woman, Mary. At the end, after he's sold for a slave's price, he's unfairly tried, scourged and beaten, despised and rejected even by many of the people that heralded him as a king as he entered into Jerusalem earlier in the week. And then hung from a cross, which, by the way, guys, is a very, very big deal in Jewish culture. If you are hung from a tree, you're said to be accursed, and you deserved everything that you got, and that God had judged you rightly, and that no one should listen to anything you have to say. 
So the fact that he was crucified, right, in Jewish culture would have said, he's cursed by God, don't listen to this guy, he's got nothing to give us or offer us. And then lastly, as if he hasn't faced enough in his life up to this point, he's buried in a tomb that he doesn't own himself or his family doesn't own. He's in a borrowed tomb of a rich guy that happened to be involved with his, his ministry. Now think about everything I've just said for the last five minutes about who Jesus was. Does that inspire some great response in you? You know, would, would, would that type of person be fit to run a country, to be called a king? probably not something we would consider to be high on our, our list of someone who is presidential or kingly or could run a country and a nation. It doesn't seem to fit the description of what God says is going to be true of the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. And yet, this is precisely why Jesus is so great. This baby born to Mary is going to be a great king. He's going to be a great conqueror. He's going to be a great ruler. Just not what Israel was looking for. Right? What, what makes Jesus so great is that he is fully God but that he is fully human. And I would submit to most of us in the room this morning that when you think about Jesus, you only think about one side of him. Oh, I love Jesus, right? A popular shirt when I was in college was this shirt with like a picture of European Jesus on it. Um, you guys know what I'm talking about, the white guy with the scraggly beard and the long hair, right? That's what we're all told he looks like. Um, I don't know if you guys have been to the Middle East. Most people don't look as pale as me in the Middle East, but you know. That's kind of what we've been told. And so there's this picture of that, that guy, that depiction that we have of him. And it said, Jesus is my homeboy. Right? right? Some of you guys are laughing because you've probably seen the shirt or whatever. Or like, I want that shirt. The hipsters in the room are like, where do I get that? Is that vintage enough now to, to wear that? Yeah, you guys can wear it. Okay. What, what's so great about that shirt, right, for, for those that are wearing it, they're like, oh, I can completely relate with the humanity of Jesus. Like, my God, my God knows who I am. I can, I can hang out with him. He walked with sinners, right? He, he was hanging out, hanging out with them and, and forgiving them and, and sleeping with the poor. And he wasn't worried about being rich. And there was all these, and so I can totally relate with him. I can, can totally relate with the humanity of Jesus. And yet they rarely relate with the other side of who he is, which is the all powerful, omnipotent, omnipresent God of the universe who knows everything that's going on, can be everywhere at all times, and spoke life as we know it into existence. That with the words of his mouth, things came into being. The atmosphere of our planet spoken into existence. Right? The moving and dividing of land and waters spoken into existence. Right? Plant life spoken into existence. Animal life spoken into existence. And then human life taken out of dust and breathed life into it. Guys, Jesus is both. 
and to only think about one is to miss out on the greatness of who he is. To not know his humanity or to not know his divinity is to miss out on a huge picture of what God sent to us. This is what I love so much about what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, if you turn over there real quick. Right? When he, he's talking about both sides of who Jesus is in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Right? He's, 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 he's exhorting the church. He's saying, hey, look, Philippians, you guys need to get along with one another. And one of the ways you do ministry, Philippians, is to, is to care about other people and put their interests above your own. It's not rocket science. You know, you don't need to be taught seven steps of highly effective people to be good at ministry. You don't need to go to seminary for, for 19 years. You don't need to go to college and get a doctorate. Right? Here's what you need to do. You need to esteem other people as more important than yourself. Have that, have that mindset in you. So if some of you guys are here, I want to go into ministry one day. This needs to be where you start. <laughs> right? You just start with caring about others more than you care about yourself. Right? And what Paul says there is, that, hey, the reason I'm telling you about this is because I want you to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he says, I want you to care about other people the same way that Jesus cared about you. And here's my proof. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He said, look, Jesus was fully God, <laughs> hanging out with the Trinity, and yet did not consider that something to be held on to because he considered the will of his Father for him more important than the power of being God's Son ruling from the Holy of Holies with him. That's your God. The God who will put on human flesh so that you might know him. The God who will put on poverty and be constantly judged. Who will live and pour his life out for others and then while he does that is despised and rejected by those same people he poured his life out for. And then suffer greatly and under no fault of his own but for the sake of others gave his life for the sin of mankind. That's the type of God we're talking about here. And Israel missed out on it. They were looking for one small picture of what they thought this man was supposed to be, and yet Jesus is so much better than that. Of course he's a ruler. He's God's son. And I hate to break it, to us because I know we're just coming out of probably a really messy political season and some of us are really happy and some of us are really sad and some of us are like why did this just happen can we hit the reset button over the last couple months what I can see about Jesus is he would look at our political situation and say why get so worried about that my kingdom is universal not national my kingdom is the cosmos not the world and in a heartbeat, 
the world responds to my voice. Instead, look at my humanity, look at my divinity, and respond. The nature of Christ is not one distinct nature, but two fully wrapped up in Him. The God-man, the divine author of all human life, and the, the man that He is, the divine participator in life as He lives. And here's the great thing about Jesus, right? I've just spent, what, 20 minutes talking about how great He is simply in His existence <laughs> as a man and as God. And yet that still only scratches the surface of who he is. He's not just great in who he is. He's great in his redemption. Right? Here's the truth about you and I. Right? No one knew, and us included, right, what the full will of the Father was for the Messiah. Right? If you go to Matthew chapter 16, right, Jesus is sitting there before his disciples explaining to them that the Son of Man has to come and be crucified and then buried and then raised again three days later. And what does Peter do, who, by the way, just earlier in that same chapter confessed Jesus as the Messiah? What, what does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside and is like, hey, buddy, I think you're a little confused about who the Messiah is. Right? Let, me, let me fix you. This will never happen to you. Right? And I love how before then he says that Peter's going to be a rock which the church can be built on or that's what we normally think at least. And then what does he call Peter right after that? Satan. Right? Kind of a big, big gap in between those two things. Right? Jesus though knew what the will of his father was which was to come and suffer and die right, for this purpose. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. For this purpose alone. starting in verse 21. And you, so this is Paul talking to you and me in this room this morning. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's talking about your life. It's like this is who you are. This is the plight of all of humanity. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Guys, Jesus is great because he is. <laughs> because of his humanity. Because of his divinity. He's great because of his rescue. He took you and I who were hostile, rebellious traitors of our creator and through his life died as a substitution for your sins so that you might be reconciled to the Father and be rescued and be adopted as sons and daughters of God, forgiven and holy and blameless as he says there in Colossians. That that is true, that he is great in his rescue because he presents you holy and blameless. And yet, still isn't it for Jesus. That while Jesus in his life came and died for you, that also in his life and after his death, burial, and resurrection, he now functions as the three offices that God had created in the Old Testament to oversee and protect Israel. 
Jesus, the God-man who died for the sins of the entire world to reconcile him to God, now lives as our prophet, our priest, and our king. That Jesus, as our prophet, boldly declares to you and I, turn from your sin and return to God. That obedience to God is not something that we should look at as something terrible, but instead as joyful and loving, because guess what? God knows what you need more than you do. And I know that's hard for me to say to a room full of people that are mostly under the age of 40. Right? A lot of you guys are teenagers or just got over being teenagers. And there, there's one thing I know about teenagers. They know everything. And so to be told, hey, you don't know everything. God knows more than you. That's kind of hard to hear. Okay, here's the reality. You're going to graduate from college here in a few years, and your parents are going to look a lot smarter, and everything I'm saying is going to make a ton of sense to you this morning. Here's how I know it's true. My own kids constantly think they know what's best for them. Okay? My, my youngest son, Josiah, some of you guys have seen him, right? He's really cute, right? His hair goes in like 50 different directions. He'll smile for you, except for when he's tired, and then his thumb's in his mouth, and he gives you a dirty look. Right? He would kill himself on multiple occasions if given the opportunity. Because he thinks things like opening the stove and climbing in while it's on would be a lot of fun. Right? And if you tell Josiah, hey, dude, back away from the stove, you're going to get hurt. Guess what my son does? By, by the way, my wife can confirm all of this right now. If you tell, hey, Josiah, back away from the hot stove, you're going to get burnt. He throws himself on the ground and starts kicking and screaming. Right? How dare mom and dad try to keep me from the fun of the hot burning stove? right? Okay? Bathtub, right? If I'm in the bathroom, he wants to come in, right? And dive in face first into a tub of water, okay? He doesn't know how to swim, by the way, okay? He's 20 months old, right? He would constantly seriously injure himself or kill himself in the name of fun and discovery, okay? And his evil parents, right, have outlined some rules and some laws for him as he lives in our house, right? Not because we're evil, but we, we know what's better for him. Guys, guess what? The same way your parents probably knew some things as you were growing up during your teenage years and then afterwards, and probably made some rules in your house that you may not have been super pumped about, God knows more than your parents does. If God says something like, hey, sex outside of marriage and fornication beforehand is a bad idea, guess what? It is. Right? I'm a testimony to that of having to work through that in the early years of my marriage because of the disaster that that can be. Right? If God says lying, not a great idea, most of you guys probably know this, what does a lie lead to? More lies. Until ultimately the lie gets found out and then what happens? People are devastated, and you've lost credibility and trustworthiness. It's not like God said, hey, let me make a bunch of rules and regulations to, to chain these people that I love up with because I really dislike them. And there's a reason why he's called Father. Because he's like any of you, when you're parents one day, you want what's best for your children, even if it means they're mad at you in the moment. And that Jesus, as prophet, comes and boldly proclaims the Father knows what's best for you, return to him, look at the world around you, clearly you don't know as much as you think you do.
And I would submit to you that we can take a look around us right now and see a world that's constantly trying to run on its own. And I would submit to you, we kind of stink at it. A lot. Poverty still exists. Racism still exists. Sexism still exists. Slavery still exists. For as intelligent as we have become as a species over the last 300 years, we are not anywhere close to what God says is just and right and good. Because we've sought it on our own terms. And Jesus as prophet comes and says, stop, turn to me and turn to the Father. But he doesn't just function as prophet, he functions as priest. Right? The role of the priest in the Old Testament was to go before God and offer atonement. Guess what, guys? He doesn't just offer an atoning sacrifice. He is the atoning sacrifice. In Hebrews, it says that he stands before the Father making daily intermediation on your behalf. That he stands before the Father pleading your case, saying, Father, forgive them. I gave my life for them. This is why we could say when Jesus died on the cross, he died for every sin, past, present, and future, because he pleads for you before the Father. Forgive Kevin. Forgive him, Father. I died for him. Forgive him for what he's done and let my life be enough. And then as king, he rules and reigns. And the promise of future glory and revelation is that everything we look for in that future kingdom that Israel looked for, he will do. And that we get to taste a little bit of that here on earth through the church. That with our brothers and sisters who know the depth and the magnitude of what Christ has done, we get to experience this life and knowing what it will look like one day in heaven with him. Guys, this is Jesus. This is why he's called great. What we're going to do here in just a moment is we're going to take communion. And I invite you guys every week as we take communion to take that time to pause and reflect. And what I would ask you to do this morning is chew on the magnitude and the grandness of who Christ is. He's God made flesh. He's prophet, he's priest, he's king, he's savior. So many of us will think of just one of those things, and as great as they are, he's so much more than that. And as we take communion, reflect on Christ giving his body and blood for you so that you might be forgiven for your sins. If you're not a Christian, right, we're glad you're here. I would ask that you not take communion, simply because what communion reflects is an acceptance that you believe Jesus has really come and died for your sins. So it doesn't mean the same thing to you that it does to the person next to you who is following Jesus. But today could be the day that you look upon Jesus for all that we've talked about this morning and you respond to him the way that so many of the disciples did and worship and all and allegiance 
as your God and your Savior and your King. Guys, he's worthy. If there's anything, right, that I could ever release from these lips to you is knowing how great Jesus Christ is and that you would know that fully and experience the joy of knowing him and following him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. And the great joy of knowing him, of knowing your love for your creation in the midst of its brokenness and all that he has done. The way he put on human flesh and submitted himself to death, even death on a cross the way he perfectly submitted to your will for him and laid down his rights and prerogatives as your son and a member of the Trinity. The way he suffered brutally and died so that we might be forgiven and declared holy and righteous. The way that he intercedes as priest and declares truth as king through your word. And the way that he rules and reigns his church and promises to return. As my good friend Dan Flynn used to always say, I just love Jesus, he's the best. <laughs> and it's because you are, Lord. God, may we worship you. May our, the rest of our time this morning be a sweet aroma towards you, making much of you and what you've done. Father, we exist for your glory. We come together because we love you. May we be a church marked by declaring the beauty of Jesus. And I ask all of this in his name. Amen.